I know as Jake's just said, small groups just got started last week, and I'm, I'm grateful to God that we have uh, some people that are newer to the church in our small group. We've got a, a group that, for the most part, uh, there's, a, there's a few of us that have been around for a few years together, but then we have added a, a, a few families, and some of them are, are newer to the church, and it's just after one week, I can tell it's going to be a great year. I hope the same is true for you after a week in small group, and I do hope you're going to be going to a small group. Last week, as I prepared for that first meeting, I uh, got online. I, you know, normally do this sort of obligatory icebreaker at the beginning of the year, and they're actually, they're fun. But I got on. I, I I always struggle coming up with like what sorts of things I could ask just off the off the cuff. And so I got on online on my phone last Sunday afternoon, and I was looking up lists of different questions that might be interesting. And one of the questions that I read was this: If you could meet any person in the world and ask them one question, who would you meet and what would you ask them? And the reason that I share that this morning is that in our passage, we have one of those sorts of interactions before us. We have in our verses that we're going to look at this morning, the very last final words between Jesus and his disciples. It's the, there's just a few verses at the beginning of Acts, which we'll read in just a moment. And though these verses are few, and this is our second week, we're probably going to spend at least three weeks in just these initial verses, they're foundational to everything that we're going to read and study from this point on as we go, go along. We're given a snapshot into the last dialogue between Jesus and his closest earthly companions before he leaves and he ascends back up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. When you read through Acts in the past, have you ever thought about that? In these just initial, you know, eight verses, have you ever thought that this is what's happening? Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples that are gathered around Jesus in this moment. This would have been an incredibly difficult, bittersweet strange experience. Three years prior, some stranger that you didn't know called you over to himself and said that he wanted you to be one of his fishers of men. And he was, he, he was a hard closer. You said, well, let me go you know, do this first, or let me go talk with this person or tell them. And, no, 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 no. Come, come, come with me right now. And so you come with that man. You go with him. And from that day on, your life is forever changed. You witness and experience things that you would have never believed had you not been a part of it, had you not seen it with your own eyes. You lot, you've met lots of new people. You've met lots of people that are friendly toward you, show hospitality, have you into their homes, throw dinners for you. You've also made a lot of enemies. You haven't just witnessed the things that, that this guy is doing over here, but you've actually participated in them with him. This has radically, radically changed your life, and you've come to recognize that that stranger who called you a few years ago is actually the Son of God, the Messiah. And he loves you and you love him. Until one point at which one of your friends betrays him, and then you forsake that Messiah, that man you love so much. You've run away. We're told in the Gospels that, that when Jesus was handed over, all of his disciples, in one way or another, 
left him. And Jesus said that they would, but they said, no, we won't do that. We'll never leave you. We'll die with you. And yet against their own testimony, they fled. They hid. They cowered in fear. And in their hiding, they watched from afar as Jesus was put through a false trial and went to the cross, was crucified and died. And then in the matter of hours and days, he rises from the dead, he appears to you, and in the course of just a few weeks, he is now ascending back up to be with his Father in heaven. Think about the things that these men have experienced. Put yourselves in their shoes. Think about all that they've heard from Jesus, all the things that he taught them about what the Old Testament meant, all the things that he said were part of his mission, all the things that he had told them that God wanted for them. Think about all the times that he had told them that he's going to go away. Think about the depth of love that they have for each other the way their spirits are united together. What would lead a man to say, I'll die with you? That level of commitment, that level of unity, that sort of bond. Now recognize that Jesus here in these verses is saying goodbye. It isn't forever, but it is forever in the way they have experienced it. Jesus is going to be with them, but it's not ever going to be the same as it's been in this life. Immediately after the verses that we're going to read in just a moment, immediately after that, well, here's what we're told in verse 9 of Acts chapter 1. After he had said these things, he was lifted up. While they were looking upon, a cloud received him out of their sight. So after these final words, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of, his sight, out of their sight. Gone. Gone forever in this life in terms of the way it's been, in terms of what they're used to, in terms of the relationship with Jesus in the flesh as they've known him. So the words that we read together aren't just some of the last. They are his parting words. Take that into consideration. Pay close attention to what is said because as I said last week, I want to reiterate it now. These words are foundational to everything we're going to study for the next chapters as we go through the book of Acts. His words here, Jesus' words, are a vital Importance. There are the title words that are going to be burned in the disciples' minds forever. If you've ever had the experience of talking with somebody for the last time before death, perhaps you recognize the sort of importance the disciples feel with these words of Christ. Now, Jesus isn't dying, but he's ascending. He's not going to be with them in earthly form. These words are burned into their mind, and I hope that they'll be burned into ours as we study here, from here on out. Would you stand with me? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read the first eight verses again this morning. The word of the Lord. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to, to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you have heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It is eternally true. The words which you spoke are true. They are still our mission. We are still working toward the very same ends that you commissioned your apostles and disciples to over 2,000 years ago. Father, as we've already prayed this morning, we echo the words of Christian men and women throughout history. May your kingdom come. But while we wait here, we pray that your will would be done in our lives. And Father, now I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would, together would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last week I said that the fundamental, fundamental prerequisite truth of Acts and of all of Christianity is that Jesus has overcome the world through his death and resurrection and ascension. Last week, we looked at the verse, he presented himself alive after suffering. That is the foundation for everything else, concerning Christian belief, concerning Christian practice. Without the resurrection, nothing else matters. Nothing matters at all, in term, at least as far as the scripture speaks to it. But since Jesus has been resurrected and since he does live, the opposite is true. Instead of nothing mattering, everything matters. This world and its future matter. Our lives matter. What we do matters, our conduct. Our eternities matter. Other people's eternities matter. The mission of Christ's church, the mission of his kingdom, it matters. Therefore, for 40 days, we're told in our passage, Jesus taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. He's been resurrected. He's getting ready to ascend to the Father and to complete the work of the gospel that's been predicted for thousands of years. And because he's done that and been victorious, everything he said was true. It all matters. And now he's preparing them for the work that lies ahead. Forty days, he teaches them about the kingdom of God. Now, don't think that Jesus is merely talking to them about what heaven's going to be like. That's not what he's doing. He's taught about the kingdom of heaven at various times, literally, what, what's going to be up, up there when we go to be with God. But this is not what he's doing at this point. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus speaks about it here, does not refer to heaven. It refers to the place where Jesus is. Where Jesus is, there is his kingdom. It refers to the place where... Um, it, the, it, 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 mainly, I'm sorry, rather, the kingdom speaks of Christ's church and her work because biblically speaking, on earth, where's the kingdom? The kingdom is where Jesus is and we know that where, you know it, two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. And so predominantly, when the kingdom of heaven is referred to, it's speaking about the, the life and the work and the heart of his bride, the church. Because that is where he is. There's a future dimension here. 
obviously the consummation of his kingdom at the end when he comes back and the end of all things and, and he calls all of us to be with him in heaven. But the term speaks to a reality that is already present, not just future. The kingdom of heaven is something that's a present reality. It's right here. It was right there when Jesus was teaching his disciples about it. Over the course of 40 days, Jesus worked to teach and prepare the apostles for the work that he had commissioned them to do. Think about it. He had finished his race. He had finished his work. The hour that wasn't supposed to come for a long time, you know how many times he said, no, my hour's not yet, my hour's not yet, my hour's not yet. Well, it came. And he was victorious. And now his disciples have work to do. They're to carry on that work. They're not to, to, to add to it. It was complete, but they're to carry on his great commission. And so when it says he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God, he's preparing them. He's teaching them about the work that lies ahead for them, not just what they'll passively receive and enjoy in heaven. It's about what they're being called to do. In verse 4, look at your Bibles. In verse 4, we have the last gathering. He commanded them, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Jesus tells them not to leave Jerusalem. And you've got to think about that, because that, that's a strange and confusing statement for Jesus to make, isn't it? Because over the course of these 40 days, before he died, what had he been saying? He had been saying to them that they were going to go, hadn't he? Go, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That had been Jesus' message, and it had been what he'd been preparing them to do. So Jesus has been instructing them throughout these 40 days in this regard, and he's commissioned them to the work of going out and spreading the gospel. He's taught them about the nature of the kingdom of God and what the church should look like and how to go about doing it and instituting it. And he said, go, therefore, and make disciples. And now at this very moment of separation, this very last moment before he ascends to be back with the Father, he says, wait. It's a strange thing. This morning, I want to consider why. After all, Jesus didn't need to tell them to wait. He chose to. And so this morning, we're going to think about why Jesus told them to wait. Why did Jesus do this? What did they need to learn through waiting? Now, the first thing, the first reason that Jesus required them to wait was so that they would realize and that they would remember the absolute, fundamental, total dependence upon his spirit that they as men would have. He told them to wait for what the Father had promised, which they had heard from him. Then it gets more specific, and in case there was any wondering about what he was referring to, he said, John the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now remember, before Jesus died, he had told his disciples that he was going to return to the Father, but that when he went, he would not just leave them in the dust. They would not be abandoned. He said, I will... I will always be with you. I will never forsake you. And what does he mean by that? He's going to go back up to heaven. Well, what he meant is this. He was going to send his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to them. He said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning righteousness, sin rather, and righteousness and judgment. Just think about the implications of what Jesus is telling his disciples here. I'm going to go, but it's to your advantage that I go. He's telling his disciples that his bodily absence would be more useful than his bodily presence. And many of you struggle to believe that. We might not say it, but with our actions, with the testimony of our lives, I think that's a really hard truth for us to wrap our minds around. The idea of having Jesus here with us seems so much better than him being away from us. But Jesus says in no uncertain terms that it's to our advantage, not just the world's advantage, but to ours, that he go and send the helper, then that he stay. Why is that the case? Well, let's explore a few reasons together. Now, if Christ had not died, arisen again, and ascended up into heaven, it's clear that the Holy Spirit could not have come down with special power on the day of Pentecost and given gifts to the church. Now listen, that's a hard thing to understand. Well, wait, why couldn't he come down? We can't understand the whole of it. There are certain things about what God says that we, we can't understand his motivation. Why? But he says that it's the case, and we, by faith, have to agree and say amen with that. So that we can't understand the whole of it, but there is a connection here in the eternal counsel of God, the eternal hidden communication between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is a connection between the ascension of Christ and the outpouring of Christ's Spirit to the world. I'm not limiting what Jesus can do. I'm not limiting what God can do. I'm only saying that this is what Jesus says. He says that if he does not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come. We need to acknowledge that. We need to think about the implications of that in our life. The gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit in your life would not be that way if Jesus had not ascended to the Father. If Christ had remained with his disciples in physical form on earth, he could not have been in more than one place at a time. He had a physical body. He was not omnipresent in his physical body. On the other hand, the presence of his spirit that he has sent, that spirit would be present every place that we as believers are assembled in his name throughout all the world. You think about why that's necessary in the Great Commission. Go into all the world, every nation baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son. If Christ had remained on the earth and not gone up into heaven... He could not have been a high priest for his people, for us, in the same full and perfect manner that he became after his ascension. Well, why not? He went away to sit down at the right hand of God and to appear before him in our human nature. You think about that. Jesus is not a spirit in heaven. Jesus has a human body forever with holes in his hands in heaven and he is ministering for us, representing us before the Father. He advocates. Last year in small groups, we studied Hebrews. And we, my group had a great conversation one night about what it means that Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus lives every day making intercession for me and for you. 
He's not just building houses. That's true. He's going to prepare a place. But Jesus' everyday work is making intercession for you before the Father in an earthly body. And he couldn't have done that if he was here with us. Finally, if Christ had remained on earth, there would have been far less room for us to exercise faith and hope and trust. Remember, the Bible says it's far better, more blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. The object of our faith is in the risen Christ who we don't see. And therefore, faith and hope and trust have to be much more active exercises in our lives. I trust that my son is sitting in the pew. Why? Because I can see him. It doesn't take any trust for me in my son right now because I can see it with my own eyes. But we glorify God and we give God praise and we witness to the truth and glory of God by believing in him who is not seen. And so if Christ hadn't ascended, we wouldn't have had such an exercise in, in, these, in these things that God calls us to. Okay, these are just a few. Right? We said, why is it to our advantage that, God, that Jesus ascended? These are just a few of them. It is to our advantage, it's to our advantage and to the world that Christ descended back to the Father and not just that, he will never leave you or forsake you, that he send his spirit. Notice also that though Jesus spends, sends his spirit, I'm sorry, notice that though Jesus sends us to all of the nations to make disciples and to teach, it is not us but his spirit that is the active player. Jesus says that when the helper comes, not you will convict the world, but he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But of course, who does he do that through? Most of the time, God's ordinary means are through us. So it's not just through you. And it's not just through a, 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 the spirit that is unattached to any voice to speak absolute truth. It is through the spirit living within us. The first reason that Jesus required his disciples to wait, we're going back to that idea, was so that they would realize and remember their total and utter dependence upon his spirit. The disciples are excited to get going. They've got their mission. They've been trained. They've got an approach. They've been taught by the master. What do they need still? They need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. If he does not come upon them, their work is futile. Their work is vain. Their evangelism falls on ears that are stopped up and hearts that are cold. Their witness is worthless for affecting others. Their love is not ever reciprocated. It's not received. It's not acknowledged without the work of the Spirit that softens hearts. Jesus tells his disciples to wait at this vital moment to impress upon them the necessity of their reliance upon him and his power. And as we think about the disciples, what we need to think about ourselves is how quickly we forget our own reliance on God, how quickly we are to not give any heed or thought to our need for Christ and his spirit in our lives, how quickly we're prone to grab on to our own abilities, our gifts, the things that God gives us, and we seek to use those things apart from the Holy Spirit giving them effectiveness. How quickly many of the disciples had even turned, think about it, they turned from a reliance upon Jesus when they were able to walk with him and talk with him. They so easily and quickly forgot the things that he had told them. Even Peter, 
the one to whom Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom, had just weeks before taken his eyes off Christ. When Jesus was approaching them on the lake, Peter hopped out again there, not deserting him like he did before his trial, but he hopped out of the boat and he could see the Christ right there before him, and yet he was so quick to focus on himself and to forget his reliance upon Christ. The gospel is about Jesus overcoming the world, and Acts is a testimony of the powerful, life-changing work of the church when she, the church, has the Holy Spirit working in the midst of her. When you and I have experienced new birth and we are given the power of the Holy Spirit, extraordinary, wonderful things happen. The power and the glory of God will be made visible and lives will be changed and God will be glorified. Jesus says to wait because you must be dependent upon him and his spirit. Our need for his spirit is so significant that when the Old Testament figure, King David, the man after God's own heart, sins and commits adultery and murder, his request was not that his life would be spared. It was not his request that the kingdom be kept from being handed into the hands of his adversaries. What was David most concerned about? What was the thing that he pleaded with God for? Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Do not cast me from your presence. David knew the importance of Christ's spirit. God could take his life, his kingdom, his wealth, his children, but please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Please do not forsake me. Is that your view of Jesus' spirit in your life? Do you need the Holy Spirit like David needed the Holy Spirit? Now, if David is not a strong enough example for you, we have others. I think one of the mind-bending realities of the scriptures in the Bible is that, uh, and of Jesus' incarnation, Jesus coming and being born in human flesh as a man, is that he too needed the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a sort of a mind-bending reality right there. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit applied to him in his, in his humanity. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied saying that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. And part of this is certainly fulfilled when you think about the story of Jesus coming down from heaven. It said, the angel says to Mary, you will conceive by the power of the Spirit, right? And so part of that prophecy is fulfilled. But later it's fulfilled in a more direct way when he enters public ministry. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, John the Baptist the predecessor to Christ, the one who came before him and announced his kingdom and said, hey, one is coming after me of whose sandals I'm unfit to untie. John the Baptist preached about the one who would come and baptize not with water, but with spirit. That's why Jesus references it right here in our chapter, in Acts 1. But before Jesus could baptize with the Holy Spirit, he needed to what? He needed to receive the spirit, didn't he? So at 30 years old, right before his public ministry begins, right before, the Bible says, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness for the 40 days of temptation. And notice again, I just realized that 40 days, 40 days of teaching his disciples. There's all sorts of connections. Right before that, Jesus is baptized. And what are we told? As he was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. 
Here at the outset of his ministry, the Spirit descends upon Christ with a new fullness so that he can fulfill his calling. Again, there's some mystery here. I'm not trying to explain the way these things work, but they are told to us very clearly. And we need to acknowledge them and let those tr- this, this truth change us. You think you can achieve anything without the Holy Spirit? You think you can affect your marriage in the way you need to? You think you can make your child's will bend to yours just through your own power? You think that you can achieve whatever the good life is for you through your own means? You think that it is by your looks or people skills, social intelligence, that you can do the work of Christ's kingdom in spreading the advance of the gospel? You really think that? Jesus didn't think that. We can't. We're dependent. Last night, I was thinking about this dependency, and I, I, there was a little illustration that I thought might be helpful. Um, we put Melina, who was our youngest daughter, down to bed. She's two years old. And while we were getting the other kids ready for bed a little while later, we heard Melina start to cry in her room. And so I went in with her, and I picked her up, and she was standing up in her crib, you know, crying, and she had dropped her blanket out, and so I thought that might be why she was crying. So I gave it back to her, and I held her for a little bit, and she calmed down, and I went to put her back down. And she started crying again. So I thought, okay, now maybe it's just an attitude issue. You know, I'm going to, okay, now, Melina, you're going to bed, you know. And so uh, three minutes later, she had sort of calmed again. And I go to put her back down, and she starts to cry again. And I, I, le- I lay her in the bottom of her crib, and I start to walk away. And she is, her face is, 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 is sad, and she's frowning and starting to cry. And not a mean cry, you know, like the sad cry, you know, the sad cry. And I'm walking away, and Aaliyah's like, does she have a dirty diaper? I'm like, no, I didn't smell it. I don't feel anything. I don't know. You know, she's got two layers on. I don't really. That's some work to look. You know, I'm trying to feel it and smell it. And I, well, okay. She had a dirty diaper. She had who knows for how long, and she's laying there in it. And how many of you have experienced that recently? All right, I, no show of hands. No show of hands here. All right. But, but the reality of that situation is she's sort of miserable. I, can, I, I would be too. But she's helpless and weak. And all she can do is cry when I put her down and walk away. She, there's nothing she can do. She can't undo the snaps of her own pants. She's dependent. And you are dependent. Jesus loves little children for a reason. They're so honestly helpless and dependent upon him. They're such a perfect picture for us of ourselves if we see ourselves rightly before him. Are you dependent on Christ's spirit like this? Is this the relationship you have with his spirit? If so, it's going to affect your prayer. It's going to affect your praise. It's going to affect your adoration toward God. You know, when I changed her diaper, that girl was happy. That girl gave me a real big smile I said, do you want to go to bed? And she went, and you laid right down. She loved me. She was dependent on me. Do you love God like that? If you're dependent on Christ anyway, why not go big for him? Why not be bold for him? Why not go up against all odds for the glory of Christ? Why not give your money away? Jesus is the one who provides it for you anyway, doesn't he? 
Aren't you already dependent? Is the man with much any less dependent than the man with little? This is the type of living example we see in the book of Acts. What we're going to read in the following weeks is what it looks like when people are just open and unashamed of their dependency on Christ. The disciples are told to wait by Jesus. Why wait? Well, it's because that they needed him. It's to underscore the reality that they needed him. There's one other parallel I want to highlight before we close. And that is that waiting is central to the gospel. You might think, well, what do you mean by that, Nathan? We're waiting for you to finish the sermon. No, waiting is central to the gospel. It's central to the story of redemption. Jesus tells them to wait because waiting and anticipation are going to be central in their lives from this point on. Waiting and anticipation are central to your life, too, if you're a Christian. We pray, like we already said, your kingdom come. And if you pray that with honesty and longing, then you're waiting for the day when Jesus is going to come back. You're aware of how waiting is part of the universal Christian experience. The story of God, the gospel, Jesus coming and paying the price for all of our sins, is, has been written and planned from all of eternity. But it takes place on a very historical timeline a very literal time span, hours and days. God could have easily sent Jesus in the garden right after sin was initially committed. You ever think about that? He could have sent it after the flood, right? Wipe out everything and now wouldn't this be cool? Send Christ right now before man can start screwing it up again. He could have done it when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and said, you know, we want a king now. Ah, this would be a good time. I'll send the king, the Messiah down. He chose not to. He made them wait, waiting Waiting, waiting. It wasn't until the fullness of time came that God sent his son to redeem us. And even after Jesus had been born, it was many years until his hour had come. His mother Mary wanted it to be right then at the wedding of Cana, but Jesus had to say, no, no, no. My hour is not. Waiting is a part of the universal experience as a Christian. It always has been from the very beginning. The promises to Abraham were not fulfilled right then. He had to wait for them. Waiting. Why? One more reason. Why? I want to just say that waiting inflames anticipation. Waiting inflames anticipation. When we go on vacations, we like to plan the vacation a year in advance. Why? Well, because it's sort of enjoyable to anticipate all the things that you might do. It's fun to think about the experiences you might have. And we have found as parents that when we do this, it's infectious. That anticipation is infectious, and it sort of trickles down to our kids. We're excited. Our kids are excited. Now, you may not get excited about vacations a year in advance. But for us as Christians, there is one great central anticipation that is, and that is going to be with the Lord. This longing is the same thing that allows the Apostle Paul to say to die would be gain for him because to be absent from our bodies is to be present with the Lord again in the flesh. And this was his great anticipation. And so, firstly, Jesus tells us to wait so that you'll recognize your utter dependence upon his spirit. Secondly, Jesus tells you to wait 
so that anticipation might be kindled and so that it might catch fire in your hearts, that you wouldn't be drab and blah and just uh, this life. No, but that there would be a burning anticipation for that glorious time ahead that is the consummation of all of history and it's the central truth and beauty of your life. That's why he wants you to wait. And so I, I ask you as we close, do you have this sort of anticipation? Do you have a kindling in your heart for that great day when you will be united again with the Lord? If you do, it will be seen. That's not just some little precious thing in your heart that you keep hidden. God has given us very specific things to do as we await the kingdom, a mission to accomplish. And if we anticipate his kingdom, we're going to get caught up in doing the things he's told us to do because we love him and we can't wait for his return. Think about what Jesus says in his parables. The virgins, right? The good virgins, the virgins that, the virgins that were really anticipating Christ were kept busy preparing for him to come. They weren't sleeping. They didn't let their oil go to waste. They were ready. They were looking forward to it. The same could be true with the, the story about the tenants, right, that, that were given to the, the righteous stewards, right? The, the, the good servants who made good on what God had told them used that money for his glory and were ready. They were working toward it. They were anticipating it. So I want to ask you, do you anticipate, do you anticipate his return? Do you long for the holiness of heaven? Is this earth dull by contrast to the joys and the glories that await you? If so, you are rightly awaiting as Jesus taught. But even as we wait, we do not wait with nothing to do. We're going to learn about a lot of things we can do over the next months. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Another way of saying this is that if you're anticipating waiting for the kingdom, you will, you're going to start bearing the fruit of the kingdom right now, man. If you want to be with Christ in heaven, you're going to start living that way right now. You're not going to wait till you get there. If you don't live like that now, you're going to get to heaven and think, this is horrible. You didn't live that way on earth. You're going to, I don't like these people. I don't like these activities. Live that way now. Anticipate the kingdom now. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven is exactly what the book of Acts is all about. And I hope that it is what your life and mine will testify to. Do you, have you received the Holy Spirit? Don't assume. Don't presume. Just because you've seen his kindness and goodness around your life does not mean that you've received the Holy Spirit yourself. Don't skip out on that question. Just because you maybe have grown up in a faithful home doesn't mean that you don't need to be faith-filled yourself. Do you recognize your dependence upon the Holy Spirit in all of life? Do you anticipate Jesus' coming return? Would you pray with me?